Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. After beginning his career as a lawyer, David Morrison founded Morrison Financial Services Limited in 1987 with the objective to providing tailored asset-based financing to small and medium-sized businesses. David enjoys every aspect of his role from being a member of the credit committee to planning and steering his company's development and watching his team grow. David has recently been appointed a member of the Ontario Securities Commission Investment Fund's Technical Advisory Committee for a two-year term. This commitment advises the OSC staff on technical compliance, challenges in the investment fund's product regulatory regime, and highlights opportunities for improving alignment between investor industry and regulatory goals. He is also a member of the Technical Advisory Committee that provides industry input to the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario in relation to the mortgage industry. And as much as that is about his technical bio, if you will. Uh, This was an amazing conversation with a very wise individual who took his success and his many years of experience and really shared a lot of what he's gained. And in this conversation today, we went down lots of paths and lots of rabbit holes as we uh, are apt to do, but lots of lessons to take away here today, folks. Listen in, let's get to work. David Morrison, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Glad to have you on the show, man. Thank you for having me. So, David, you know, I always open for my viewers, my listeners, in this case, listeners, but, you know, I always have to open with the question 
of if somebody walks up and says, so David, what do you do? Now you're well into your career, into life. How do you answer these days? Because you've uh, covered a lot of ground. I'm the owner operator of a financial services company. I am actually a lawyer by profession. I only practiced for three short years. I knew probably within the first 15 minutes of practicing law that it was not going to be my career. I was working at a large downtown law firm and uh, I just, I don't know, I just knew. And uh, it was intuitive. And I spent most of the three years that I was practicing trying to figure out what I would do next. Uh, although, in those three years, I was actually pretty good <laughs> at what I was doing, uh, but but knew I would leave it. And I started in 1987 a financial services company that bears my name, Morrison Financial. And my resume gets pretty boring after that because it's the only job that I've had since. Well, there so, you go. There you go. Well, it's interesting. An old friend of mine who was a lawyer at one point, if I ask him, you know, what do you do these days? And he, or some version of that question, he always answers with, well, first off, I'm a recovering lawyer. And, yeah. uh, you know, he's kind of in that place. And interestingly enough, in my retail store in Edmonton, my retail business, which I've had for 38 years now, the, I just, uh, I had hired a young guy about uh, two or three years ago. Interestingly enough, he passed the bar, uh, mm. spent six months as a lawyer at a firm and went, I don't want to be a lawyer. And he quit being a lawyer. And uh, he came out and, and helped uh, assisted in managing my store for a couple of years, hit it out of the park. He was amazing. And uh, yeah, he's just taking a break from anything too uh, hot and heavy. And he was great at retail. I, I, he, he moved on, which was not a surprise. But anyways, I share that only because not everybody wants to be a lawyer, even once they become a lawyer, I guess. So, so Patrick, I should mention that, you know, today it's quite commonplace for people to graduate from law, maybe practice a little bit and then leave law, it's it's almost practically a norm. Wow. Uh, it, when I did it though, it was really uh, outrageous. Like, I mean, people couldn't figure it out. It was the <laughs> mid 80s and, uh, and a whisper campaign went around among peers that maybe I'd been asked to leave by the partners or maybe something had happened, maybe I screwed <laughs> up on file. Uh, and none of that was true, uh, but it was so unusual. We were getting what seemed like big bonuses in those <laughs> days. And uh, I was in a downtown Toronto firm. I was where it's at. I was where everybody was reaching for when we went into law school. And then one day I just announced that I'm leaving. And uh, to give you an idea how unusual it was, uh, a couple of years later, Canadian Business Magazine did a feature article. I was on the cover of the magazine. It was called Life After Law. Wow. Okay? Yeah. They were interviewing lawyers that had left the practice of law because it was considered so unusual. And, and they wanted to know why. And, and I was sort of featured as the, 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 the candidate. And, uh, and I just talked about why I left and, and, and what I was doing since. And they featured some other lawyers as well who had done the same thing. But it was sufficiently unusual <laughs> that they actually did an article on this. And I wow. thought that that Blasphemy, blasphemy. So why was it that you left? Just out of curiosity, seeing as we're on kind of on that topic, why is it that you left law? Well, it was bad then. I think it's worse, worse today, okay, that the legal profession has a serious problem with its business model. And I don't think anybody's happy. 
Okay, nobody. Okay, I don't think the clients are happy. I don't think the lawyers are happy. Uh, nobody wins. Uh, and, and the reason why is because it's a profession where there really is no meaningful leverage, okay, of capital. I mean, you can get a, it, you know, the model under which I grew up was that you come in as a young lawyer, an articling student, you work your way up, the partners dump on you tons of work, you know, you're working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks, and and uh, and they're scraping the sweat off your back, and, and that's fine, okay? But the moment, you know, it became apparent that the moment that, you know, a partner had three or four or five in his group that he was able to leverage in that way, eventually at some point uh, they would say, you know, why are we working for the old man? You know what I mean? And then they split off and, and it was very difficult to build on, on something that would produce for you because it was all based on other people's labor mm -hmm. uh, that, that, and, and relatively expensive labor. And everybody wanted to sort of move up. And all you could do was just keep charging higher fees. That was the only way you could make more money or get where you wanted to go. And it's just become so expensive for the consumer. You know, the middle class has no access to justice these days because it's simply too expensive and the system is too burdened and too slow. And I just didn't like it as a business model. When I won a case, it was, you know, oh, that bastard shouldn't ever shoot me in the first place. I, you yeah. know, it was the facts that won the case. It had nothing to do with me, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I lost the case, it was my fault. So, kind of, so kind of like a thankless job on top of it all. Yeah, I just thought that the whole business model was no good. If somebody wanted to do it, it was fine with me, but it was not what I wanted to do. So you, uh, so that's interesting. So you go into financial services business and, you know, you've built your practice over a number of years, but what took you kind of down that path? So I actually, at the time that I was looking to leave, okay, I, I just want to finish one last point on that. Sure, you know, please. Uh, you know, in law, you bill your time. You keep track of your time. Yeah, of course. Okay. I remember saying to my wife, because I left right at about the time I got married, you know, I only know of one other place where they do that. And that's sort of in prison. You know, you put that chalk <laughs> on the wall <laughs> yeah. and you get five days and you crash somebody and that's a yeah. week, you know. Yeah. And I said, like, I don't want to be in any occupation where I have to account for and keep track of my time. Mm -hmm. And that was a really important criterion to me. So I was looking at a number of different businesses. I looked at, I think, 55 businesses uh, in total before I could see what I wanted to be in. And one of the things that I learned very, very, well, it wasn't right away, but well into the task was that nothing that is advertised for sale, nothing that is advertised for sale is worth buying. Okay, when you have a business that has a value and you want to sell it, you don't have to advertise it. You already know who the best buyer is, and it's likely one of your longtime competitors. And you can call them up and you can say, let's have coffee. And you can do a deal over a napkin in a restaurant or a coffee shop because the competitor understands the inherent value of your company. He has the same customers. He understands the contribution margin that it would bring to his business. If you're advertising your business for sale, it means that you don't really know who would want it. And so I spent a lot of time looking at ads and, and none of them ultimately proved out to have anything attractive to me. Uh, I did, however, uh, back in 1986, uh, notice a classified ad where somebody said lucrative business for sale. 
it was a name. I won't mention the name at this point in time. Uh, and it has a telephone number. I mean, the name wasn't in the ad, but the telephone number led to the name. And uh, he described the financial services business that he had set up. It was a factoring company, actually. It was factoring auto body invoices, uh, invoices from auto body shops to insurance companies. And, uh, and it kind of intrigued me. It was just lucrative business for sale, telephone number. And uh, I called the person and I made some notes and I still have those notes in the side drawer of my desk. And, uh, and during the conversation, I realized that he was missing the point. This was an individual who was doing his MBA and he set up this business on the side. And the reason he was leaving the business was because it was taking too much of his time and it was interfering with his studies. He wanted to sell it for $25,000. And I said, okay, well, let's meet. And I never did hear from him again. Uh, he said, I'll get back to you. Uh, it occurred to me sometime later that he had sold the business to somebody else, which was fine. But while I was waiting to meet with him, I started thinking about it. And I said, you know, I understand what he's doing. I understand what his market is. I understand how he does it. He might have a computer program that he thinks has some value, but that would be easy to recreate. And I just started thinking to myself, I could just do this myself. I don't have to hear from him. But what was also nagging at me was in my view that he had missed the point. He was doing all the work himself. And that's why it was taking all the time. I ended up leaving my practice of law and setting up a similar business in the same space. And what I did, however, was I did, he is involved going on the road and delivery and pickup and all this kind of stuff. I ended up uh, not doing any of that. I simply ran the central hub and I hired six road representatives to go out and do the part. And I gave them commission territories and uh, it was successful from the get-go. Within two years, I was earning five times my legal income and, uh, and I wasn't keeping track of my time. I mean, I was, a, I was loving what I was doing. I was working the hours that an entrepreneur works, uh, but I wasn't keeping track of my time. I was basically leveraging capital in a defined space. And I had road representatives that were out there, was managing the hub, and I uh, was able to create all kinds of efficiencies that you couldn't get in the way that he was operating. And that's how I got launched. You know, I was, uh, we were purchasing... Uh, receivables due to auto body shops from insurance companies for repair work that had been done. And uh, that was the sole business at the time. And I managed to diversify from there. If you want to hear that story, I can. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it really is. I mean, how long have you, you, you know, this has been many years later now you've, you know, you're got Morrison Financial Services. And tell me a little bit about the journey of, of morphing from what you were doing and how much has it changed? Is it a mere shadow of its former self? Is there, you know, I mean, fundamentally things are similar. Where are you at on the journey overall now? Oh, I'll tell you, I'll give you that story. So when I was buying the auto body claims, okay, what, the invoices and billing the insurance companies and all that, I mean, I managed to build that up into, you know, we were doing about, $3 million of volume a month, and it was producing revenues of $150,000 to $180,000 a month. This is way back in, uh, sure. in 87, Big money back then. Big money back it, then. It, it was really nice money back yeah. then. Yeah. Uh, but, but what happened was in about four years into the business, I got approached by somebody who 
At the time, Shoppers Drug Mart was kind of unifying its purchasing. Like you used to sell to an individual store, but now they had this central distribution center. Sure. And somebody wanted me to buy a Shoppers Drug Mart invoice uh, that was going to be payable in 30 or 60 days. There's a $100,000 invoice or thereabouts. And, uh, and I didn't know really anything about that. And I kind of hemmed and hawed at the opportunity. But then I thought, you know, it's really not that different from the auto body claims that I was buying, except it was a lot larger. It was 50 times the size. My average claim back then in auto body repair was two or $2,500. Sure. I, was making, I was making maybe 120 or $150 on a transaction that would open and close in 60 or 90 days. And, and, and so it was, uh, but, but conceptually, this was the same thing. So you know what I said? I'm going to try one. And I bought the invoice and I charged the same rate as I charged. And it was good for him. It was good for me. 30 days later, the check comes in, you know, and from Shoppers Drug Mart. And I kind of said to myself, you know, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to use foul language in this podcast. We go all over the map here, buddy. You use whatever language you want. (laughs) I basically said, holy shit, I just did 50 auto body transactions in one. I just equivalent of 50 transactions. And at the time, I had about 20 people working in the office doing admin. I said, you know, I could do the same volume with a quarter of these people if I just increased my transaction size. And so I started to get very interested in that factoring invoice purchasing business, invoice purchasing business that was outside of the auto body sector, predominantly because it was going to afford me larger volume and larger transaction size and more efficiency. And I started doing that and it built on that. And by... 1992, five years after I started the auto body business, I was actually ready to abandon it because the transaction sizes were too small. And I ultimately did over the course of the next two years. And I allowed my service reps to take over their territories and funded them for a while while they did it as their own business. And some of them kept going for a few years, but I was no longer interested in a business by that point in time where my transactions, average transaction size was two or $2,500. There was other things happening at the same time too that threatened the continuity of the business. Introduction of no fault insurance had an impact. And so, uh, but by that time I was well on my way and I was doing the non-auto body activity, uh, same business, same concept, just in a non-auto body uh, sector where the volume was much higher. And I did that for a good number of years. In 1992, at the same time that I was doing that, somebody came to me and said that uh, he had a situation where he was, he was a roofing company and he was putting a roof on a condominium corporation and they did not want to pay him at the time. They wanted to know if they could take back some paper and pay over the course of three or five years. And it was the same concept, but now it was a term invoice. It wasn't, you know, just a short term 30, 60 day contract. And I, I declined. I knew this guy, uh, personally, and he lived in my neighborhood. And about three months later, he came back to me again. And he said, you know, I got another one of these. They think I'm a fucking bank, excuse my French. That, that's, that's the way they were. He was talking to me, sure. right? Yeah, I'm not a bank. I, you know, can you buy this paper? And I told him, listen, I can't do this, but look at your friend. I'm going to look into it. And I was just curious what was going on. Why did this condominium corporation, 20-year-old building, 
who they wanted to put on a new roof. Why didn't they have the money? Why were they asking them to finance this? And what was the credit like? And, uh, you know, I was very happily married at the time, two children, but I did not want to waste even one minute of my time at the office on this because I thought it was going nowhere. So I, being a lawyer, I took home a copy of the Condominium Act. And uh, I'm reading yeah, I'm sure. reading. I'm reading it in bed, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to waste any office time, you know what I mean? And I I just sort of say, okay, I'm going to read this thing. And Patrick, I have to tell you, my mind nearly blew a fuse. Okay. (laughs) I I couldn't sleep that evening. I, I, I just completely got it. Okay. I called up the guy. I said, I'll buy your paper. Okay. The next day I said, I'll buy your paper. And I did. And it was my first transaction. And that led to the development of something called condo court term financing, uh, where I offered a product where I would purchase term debt or loan to condominiums in order to enable them to do major repairs. And the issue that I got, the, the thing that I that took hold of me is that these are bodies of governance. These are bodies of governance. This is sovereign debt. You know, if you live in a condominium corporation, you have four levels of government. You got your federal, your provincial, your municipal, and you got your condo corp. And they have the right to levy taxes, They're, you know, the monthly contributions. Yes. And if you don't pay, they have a lien against your unit that comes in first position. And uh, so they can enforce their debt. But at the same time, like every other democratic government in the world, they have no money. They don't save up money and they operate, you know, in a way that defers, uh, you know, the short term cost to people. And there's a whole host of reasons for that. I ended up developing a product called Condo Corp Term Financing. I had to go to different financing sources. They had backed me, uh, but I found them somewhat readily. And before you knew it, it was doing tens of millions of dollars in this category alone. And today, if you go to our company's website, uh, morrisonfinancial.com, you'll see that we are participants in a national partnership with Meridian Credit Union, who have been our sponsors in this. They they provide funding for this. We it's an exclusive partnership. So if you go to anywhere in Ontario or Ontario or Canada and you ask for a condominium corporation loan, uh, it comes even in a Meridian branch. It'll come through our company and uh, we do all the front end. They do the back end uh, financing and it's a great product. We're very, very competitive and we continue to do tens of millions of dollars in that product alone. You know, since that time, 1992, I did the first loan in Canada to a condominium corporation that had to do a major repair to its building. And so that was another diversification of the business. One of the financiers for that product early on was a company today known as Equitable Bank, Equitable mm-hmm. Bank, or EQ Bank. It's now, I think, in the top seven of Canadian banks, not yep. quite in the top five or six, but just outside there. I think they recently beat a Laurentian Bank for that position. But at the time, they were a small trust company. And uh, they were giving me financing. And the CEO of the company called me up one day after I'd been doing this with him for about two or three years. And he said, let's have lunch. And uh, I said, okay, what are we talking about? Just come down, we'll have lunch and we'll we'll talk, right? So I met with him and uh, he's no longer CEO. He he retired some time ago, but, uh, uh, but he said, you know, my all of our business, we're a one office trust company and all of our business comes in through mortgage brokers and other types of brokers out there. And uh, 
my staff complained that it always comes in a big mess, but they want to do the business, so they have to sort it out. They said, you know, they say whenever they get a deal from your firm, it always comes in neatly packed, a Curlock's binder, table of contents, everything in order. Mm -hmm. They don't have to do anything. They just have to sort of throw it in the file, you know, do the funding, and that's it. And he says, you know, I said, well, that's not unusual. That's my legal training. That's how we, I was taught to do things when I was when I was practicing law. And I'm just sort of following that same thing. It just seems natural to me. And he said, what else can we do together? And I said, we can't do anything else together. He goes, why? Because you're basically only licensed to be a mortgage company. And our condo loans are classified by the regulators as the equivalent to mortgages. So we're able to do those. But but I'm not in the mortgage business. And uh, and so I can't see what else we could do together. He said, get into the mortgage business. I'll back you. Okay. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and right on the napkin there in the restaurant, he wrote down what the deal was. And, and in that year, we incorporated Morrison Financial Mortgage Corporation as a wholly owned subsidiary of Morrison Financial Services Limited. And lo and behold, we were in the mortgage business. And I went to some friends of mine who I knew were builders and developers because that was the space that I wanted to connect in. And that's where he thought it would be a good area for me to be. And I gathered some low-hanging fruit. And before you know it, developed a $60 million mortgage portfolio uh, that was funded in partnership with these guys, with Equitable. And, uh, and then we went to some other trust companies, started doing the same thing, went to some other banks and started doing the same thing. And before you know it, uh, we had this little mortgage business within the company and it was sort of operated separately, but together. And, uh, you know, I had different staff on the, on the different transactions, uh, but I, I really did not regard it as the main part of my business. I, I re really thought of myself as a commercial financier back then, still doing the factoring or whatever. And for a long time, it was the major part of the business. But one of the things that I noticed is that in the mortgage business, as in the condominium loan business, I could layer transactions on top of each other and I could build quite a big portfolio, although my margins were significantly smaller than in the factoring business. But the business stayed for a much longer time and you could develop client relationships. In the factoring business, it tended to go relatively quickly. They either moved on and went to a bank or they went out of business or you were constantly, it was very difficult to build a significant size portfolio. Uh, whereas in the mortgage, in the condominium lending, it was much, much easier. So, you know, it, I, it was really for many years just a boutique part of the business, a part within the whole. Over time, though, uh, well, specifically what happened was my competitor, a, a key employee from one of my competitors in the condo lending business left there and left his company and came to join me. And he was on a... Uh, one year non-competition. So we said, okay, you won't go anywhere near our condo business during that time, but why don't we take this mortgage business and see if we can build it? And that's what we did. He focused on that for his whole first year. And as a result of that over time, and I'm talking now decades, not years, the mortgage lending business, mortgage lending to builders and developers became our major business. And today it's the main focus of the business. And it's a portfolio in the hundreds of millions, not in the tens of millions. And uh, we're having a good time. But that's basically how the transition happened. You know, that's I, I mean, you look at that journey and you look at the story and I'm, you know, as I'm 
you know, I'm, I'm here on zoom with you. So I'm observing and I'm listening and, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of directions that, you know, we can go with this conversation in terms of the nuts and bolts and the business. But I also am always intrigued by the journey of, you know, an entrepreneur, the journey of somebody like yourself. I mean, you went, you basically back in the day when you're a lawyer, you went for a job, took you three years to go, this sucks. I'm out back to the whole conversation about, you know, I don't want to account for my time. And I always want to go back a little bit further, you know, for our listeners, when we consider, you know, seemingly ordinary achieving extraordinary i mean you're certainly at the top of the list of that but where where does your your roots come from like were your were your parents entrepreneurs were they you know where did you get your entrepreneurial spirit from do you think david i mean i see where being a lawyer in education that would give you the tools but what kind of fired you up to be that entrepreneur so uh I, I, I can actually answer that question, believe it or not. Okay. And I think it was a perception of poverty. You know, uh, my parents uh, divorced when I was uh, basically a teenager. They separated uh, when I was, and, and they married way too young. I mean, they're both great people and all that kind of stuff. Sure. It just was a marriage that was supposed to be. Uh, but as kids, emotionally, we were left somewhat independent from a relatively young age. And I didn't have a lot of support. And, you know, in the old days, uh, Patrick, you're probably old enough to remember this, okay? But a lot of young people won't be, okay? You used to be able to write a check. Sure, and you could give the check to somebody in payment yeah. with, the knowledge, with the knowledge that the check wouldn't actually hit your bank for two or three days later, sometimes sure. four days later through the clearing system. Okay. And, and they would kite the payment, you know, they'd yeah. write the check and they didn't have the money in the account, but they knew as long as they got to the bank account in time with the cash that the check would be covered and there wouldn't be a problem. And uh, this became part, I was 18 years old. This was part of my ordinary budgeting, you know, like, I mean, I, I couldn't yeah. get through a week with that you know and there was a teller I, I i banked at the local tv bank and there was a teller there that had grown sort of quite affectionate like, not not a romantic relationship but she was yeah. affectionate she looked at me very affectionately she understood exactly what was going on and she and she and she would try to help me by holding the check for as long as possible before rejecting it if i didn't get there on time and over the course of uh you know a couple of years uh, you know, it would happen two or three times uh, that I would fail to get the money to the bank in time and my check would bounce, you know, the returned NSF. And I would show up maybe the next day or a, a few hours later with the cash to put it in the account. Uh, but, you know, I was so embarrassed in front of this teller. I was so embarrassed. Like you have no, because she had sort of be, befriended me and yeah. was trying to support me. And I kind of was letting her down when she held the check. And I remember one time, the last time it happened, I was walking out of the bank. I had made the deposit and I'm holding the receipt in front of me for the deposit. And I said to myself, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but this is not going to be my life. This is not how I'm going to live the rest of my life. I've got to figure some way out of it. So I was kind of driven by the, you know, the, the lack of resources in my you know, young life. Now, I came from a culture and a community where education was deemed to be very important. And I did not have the option at that time, although I was very tempted to do it, to just go into business right away. You know, it, it just 
you know, in my mother's sort of rubric of, of success, that would have been, uh, you, you, you were a flunky if you did that, if you didn't have an education. So I felt I had to do that. So I went to U of T, I got my bachelor's degree, I went to law school at Osgood, I graduated, uh, but, I, but I sort of always knew going in the back of my mind that I was going to have to figure out a way to get out of this situation. And, and lo and behold, I did. I ended up even while I was in law school running a small business and, uh, and earning quite a good living, uh, putting myself through law school, living on my own at the time. And so uh, it, it was driven by not really poverty, but driven by a, a, a sense that, you know, this is what it feels like when you don't have the cash flow to get through a week. And I didn't want to live like that. And it became a very strong vote. It's interesting. Me. I find, you know, entrepreneurs at the end of the day, they see they need to survive and they take responsibility for that survival. You know, it's interesting. It's to your point, it's it's probably not a conscious thought when you're 17, 18 years old. But when you reflect on it, you realize that what you're driven by is number one, to your point around the teller is a little bit of pride, a little bit of shame behind whatever that was, but also just pure survival going, I have to survive. And you, for whatever reason, uh, you know, I find that with my own entrepreneurial career, you know, although I had a job for about eight years in the oil field, uh, I knew when I left there that I would never go back to having a job, but it was really built around, I will survive and uh, I will thrive ultimately is what, you know, became, but it is, it is, it, it also came from my case, you know, probably similar to you. You know, I really grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, four kids, you know, thousand square foot house, one bathroom, uh, you know, so we were really living in that kind of lower middle class, I think. But ultimately, I just knew that that would not be what satisfied me. And so I became creative and going, I don't know what I'm going to do. But having a job isn't it. And then I started having entrepreneurial accidents. So that's, that's kind of what drove me. But it's, it's interesting that you had that thought process, right from kind of the get go, even though it was kind of living as a, you know, a subconscious thought, perhaps. You know, I, I knew that nobody was going to give it to me. Yeah. I didn't go find it. Nobody was going to do it. There was nobody in my circle that was just going to, you know, leave me a bunch of money or anything like that. So I, I just had to do it. And I think that that was a driving factor, partially conscious and partially subconscious. Mm -hmm. It was all there in the back. So, uh, you know, like I said, I think it was a big motivator for me. And uh, I, I think it would be for anybody, really. But now do you have uh, do you have siblings? Do you have siblings along the way, David? I have an older brother, yeah. and my older brother is, uh, he also went to law school. He became a lawyer. He worked uh, initially in law, then he went and worked in a private business for a while, but then he went back to a legal career. And today he's uh, in his senior years, but he still works as a mediator and arbitrator and is been quite successful in his field. I had a younger sister who was successful, was on the verge of being, she had been appointed to be a, she was a teacher, she had been appointed to be a principal at her school in the, in starting in September. Unfortunately, she died unexpectedly on the uh, August 16th before uh, she contracted a uh, leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia, and it takes most adults very, very quickly. And she was actually on vacation when, when it, she contracted it. And, uh, and then I have a younger sister who uh, works in the uh, payments business. And so yep. it was a family of four, three yep. of us left. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it, it was just an interesting dynamic just because of our whole 
parental situation, our parents having married young and, and having in many ways abandoned us emotionally is the way I like to say it. They, they didn't abandon us physically, but it yeah. was an element of that too, you know? Oh, and, sure. Uh, you know, that, that's what parents do though, right? They, and then they never do it on purpose. It's just how life kind of comes at us. You know, that, my, my brother and I like to remark that ironically, they may have been good parents by being bad parents in the sense <laughs> that, uh, you know, they throw you in the water, you're there, you got to yeah. go survive, you got to go do it. But sure. we were more parents, the kids were more parents, like my brother and I were more parents to my sisters than their, my parents were, you know, uh, my brother was a parent to me and we, we just sort of survived together. And it was, you know, it didn't seem so bad at that time i have to tell you you know it didn't really seem so bad but it was huge motivator there's no question about it well i guess there's a there's a part of it too where you know depending on where you are in life and how you view the world you know if you're constantly complaining or not i would would say comparing yourself to something else you know back then as well we didn't have the social media comparisons we weren't clicking on a facebook live to see how everybody else seems to be living the good life this was just life and so there was no comparisons to be made and this was our life and we just lived it and that was kind of what happened uh those days seem to have changed though of course and uh we see lots of uh i guess victimness because of that perhaps but uh it's, it is an interesting journey from those times for sure absolutely so tell me something here david you know you've got into this business and the other thing that i hear as you're speaking which is sometimes rare in any entrepreneur is now you took your business to the next level i get that it was over years but you obviously at some point were able, you know, you saw that hundred grand, for example, from shoppers, I think it was, but, you know, ultimately you went from the vision of littler numbers, smaller numbers into the next level, but these are expansive in terms of our ability to kind of look at those numbers and not be intimidated by them. And as you're getting into millions of dollars and tens of millions of dollars, you know, are you at the effect of that expansiveness? Like that takes something mentally from people to be able to do that. Uh, well, it does. I mean, one of the things uh, now you're getting into uh, what are the characteristics of an entrepreneur, of somebody who can behave entrepreneurially, and uh, you know, what is your ability to manage risk and perceived risk, and how do you manage it? And these are all uh, Im- important questions. Some of the things that I might answer in response to that are have become somewhat cliche. Okay, so for example, you know, most people that have done something like what I've done will tell you that when they go to work, it doesn't feel like work. It's their fun. They're having fun. They really enjoy. They're immersed in what you're doing. And most of the time, that's the way I was. You know, I kind of lived my work. I enjoyed my work, you know. Uh, and, and so that was an important, you know, thing for me. Now, in terms of risk and, and dealing with larger transactions, I've always been willing and able to play near the edge, okay? I was always willing and able to uh, manage that issue by compartmentalization, you know? I always, when you're when you're running and, and starting a business and developing a business, there's no map that takes you through. You have to have, you know, imagine that you're, you're, you're you know, you just have to have the confidence that whatever problem that you're going to encounter, you're going to find a solution and you're going to 
diverge and you're going to go around it. You're going to figure it out. You're going to get past the obstacle and you're going to keep going. If you, if you don't have that confidence, if you can't compartmentalize your fears and your sense of risk, uh, you can't actually be in business. You have to just go get a job. You know, and let somebody else bear that. Uh, it's a it's a very very important trait that I think all entrepreneurs have, some more so than others. You know, I think it's. So- uh, let me just unpack that a little bit with you, David, because I think you know when I, you know, in the in the space that the real estate investment networks and and I've been played in now for over twenty years, working with real estate investors and entrepreneurs, as well as being an entrepreneur myself for so many years. It's interesting what you just said, because that's part of the decision making process, you know, and I've got a good friend of mine who says, you know, like, he's one of those guys, he's to your point, he he'll, he'll kind of weigh the weigh the facts, and he'll jump out of the plane without the parachute with 100% confidence that he'll build the parachute on the way down, and it will be fine. He'll solve whatever problems he needs to solve while in the air. And he also believes that you can't stand on a sideline solving a problem. You actually have to get moving in order to understand the context of the problem so that you can solve it. But that's as much mindset as it is character. And and I believe it can be developed if people can see that What's your thoughts, David? I mean, you did it. You, you did you develop that trait in yourself, or or was it kind of by nature? Okay, so that's an interesting question. I, I personally, now I'm not necessarily right. Okay, and well, saying no, none this. of this is about right. This is our experience. I think it's innate. I don't think you can develop it. I think the characteristic of, a, of an entrepreneur is you have it or you don't have it. Okay, it's 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 innate. It's it's, it's like genetic. It's like a talent. Or- it's just the only. It's a way you think. It's just that is a genetic predisposition to just go. I if there's a problem, I'm going to fix it. Yeah, I think you can take people who don't have that and you can make them into better business people through training and through all that kind of stuff. But I don't think that you can create that fundamental ability to tolerate risk and to operate in the in the environment of risk and, and to just go do it blindly, which you're required to do in business. You know, you, you just don't have uh, anybody with a compass and a map that's telling you where to go. Uh, I believe it's innate. Okay. Uh, I, I wish I could tell you otherwise. I'd like to tell you that you could go to school and learn to be an entrepreneur, but I don't think that you can. Uh, you have it or you don't have it. Sorry. Well, I <laughs> think know? there's got to be there. You know, this is an interesting path to maybe go down for a minute, David, is that there's got to be a willingness to perceivably and or actually fail. In other words, you're not going to solve every problem every time in a timely manner in a way that doesn't cost you something. So how did you how do you handle failure? So so the first point is I want you to I want everybody listening to this to understand that if anybody thinks that this was a straight line on a 45 degree angle up, okay, for me, let me tell you. It was like the perfect trajectory. <laughs> we, we, we've, got, we've got a lot to talk about, okay, because I have had all kinds of ups and downs and sideways and all around. Uh, and what I often tell people is, you know, doesn't matter, okay, doesn't matter, just Always keep moving. Just keep going forward. The only score that counts is the score at the end, and you're not finished playing. And just keep going. And you know, it's all the cliches are applicable. Okay, it's it's um, you know, if it doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. You know yeah, that one. All, okay, all right? of them. Yeah, sure. 
I always say that the reason there's cliches is because they actually mean something. And at any given <laughs> time, just pull one off the shelf. It applies. Yeah, but it's so true. It's so true. Okay. You know, uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know what I mean? Like, you're not going to change me like yep. who I am now. You know what I mean? Yep. At this age, I, I am what I am for better or for worse. You know, that's it. I often have to tell my family that. Okay. <laughs> when my, maybe when my wife's bugging me to do something that I haven't been doing, you know, they listen, you know what you got. <laughs> It's not going to change at this point. And uh, and so the thing is that, by the way, I say that as the most happily married guy in the world. Of but, course, but sure. You know, uh, the the, uh, the the point, though, is that it wasn't a straight line. Don't make the same mistake twice. I've done that, too, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> Unfortunately. Haven't we all, yeah. But, but try not to, you know, and try to keep improving on yourself. And just uh, and it just gets easier most of the time, the, the longer you keep going. And you get the feel of it. You get the feel of the trajectory. And you get the feel of when you're doing something wrong. And then, you know, you arrive at a point where you have something that is not intelligence. It's it, has, it comes by a different word, wisdom. Mm, you know, you so get true. wisdom, mm-hmm. and wisdom is the intelligence that comes from experience and just having seen people over and over again and been in many situations, and you can just sense where you're going, and you're able to avoid the worst problems in, the, in that kind of situation. So it's not about blindly just going forward. It's about applying your wisdom and about constantly evaluating or reevaluating where you're at and what you're doing and responding and adjusting and trimming the sails so that you keep going in the right direction. And it's, it's, it never stops, really. You can never stand still in business, by the way. I tell people this all the time. You know, if you're doing something that's good and profitable, somebody else is going to figure it out and they're going to start copying you and they're going to lower the margin and you better be thinking about the next thing. You Mm -hmm. know, Uh, we've all heard of Steve Jobs, the late Steve Jobs. You know, I found that one of the interesting reads was uh, Walter Jacobson's biography of Steve Jobs. Yeah, so good. He talks about a lot of different things, but one of the things that I admired about him was that he was always like way out there, looking like way ahead, you know, not in the next two or three steps, but was way out there. And uh, you have to sort of be impressed by that. And, and most of these guys that have become world famous, you know, I'm talking about the Bill Gates's, uh, Elon Musk's, uh, Steve Jobs of the world, and there's many others, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos they are able to have that vision and to realize that vision and how they're able to change the lives of human beings. Uh, I'm nowhere close to that category. <laughs> but, but, but having said that, it was actually you prefaced the question that I was waiting to ask you, which was when you look at what you developed, were you creating a vision for yourself or a outcome in each layer or level of business that you got to that you're working backwards from? Was it something that you, you know, said, okay, you know, this is where I see the business in two, three, five years, 10 years. How did you, or, or were you literally just paddling and dealing with what came up and growing from that direction? You know, were you a goal setter kind of thing, visions guy? And I think that the honest answer to that, Patrick, is that uh, I've developed my business predominantly in response to opportunities that have come to me. Okay, mm. So somebody came to me, asked me a question, or somebody came to me and presented an opportunity, and then that became 
something to pursue. I always looked at individual transactions, asking myself the question, is there a real business here? Can I replicate this transaction? If this guy needed this, you know, is there somebody else who's going to need the same thing? I was always interested in programs. I wasn't interested in simply doing a one-off transaction. So everything I looked at that way, but it was predominantly opportunities that came to me. And this is one of the things that I tell young people all the time. I've told my nephew recently, who's a graduate of various degrees, but looking for what to do. You know, if you wait, trying to figure out what the perfect, what the perfect thing to do is, you'll wait your whole life for that. But I tell young people who want to be in business, who really have that sort of entrepreneurial bent, just pick something and start doing it. Okay, start doing it. It's when you're in business that opportunity is presented to you. Okay, now you have to be thoughtful about what you start doing and and how you start doing it. But it's when you're active that you're meeting people, you're talking to people, you come across this person, you come across that person and and opportunities then come to you. If you're sitting at home trying to figure out what to do, nobody's calling you. Mm -hmm. Nobody's calling you. You have to get active and just start doing something. And my case is a classic one in point. I just dove into a financial services business from nowhere. Okay. I managed to convince banks to back me from the get go. And uh, as a result of that, people heard, oh, this guy's doing financing. Oh, I need some financing. And then I need some. And then before that, you're talking to somebody about this. And I've told you bits and pieces of the story already. You know, opportunities came to me because I was. It's something equivalent to creating your luck. You know what I mean? You know, great athletes create their luck. They, 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 they don't just score. They're able to create situations that enable them to score, you know, and, and we call it creating your luck. You know, a golfer gets a hole in one, not because he can hit a hole in one every time, but he's good enough to get near the hole most of the time. And that uh, it creates an enhanced likelihood that he's going to get that hole in one. And he golfs a lot. And he golfs a lot. It's an interesting concept here, David, that, you know, I love what you're talking about in terms of creating opportunities. Now we're, and I, and it's like, were you consciously creating opportunities or were you just doing what you do? And out of that came opportunities, you know, it's like, were you that guy that was out shaking hands, kissing babies, you know, talking about what you were doing, or were you just a guy who worked hard, did a great business. And because of your reputation, because of your character, people approached you because I know that listeners right now, people are going, well, how the hell do you create opportunities? I've been waiting to create opportunities. Like, how is it that you did it? Was it conscious, unconscious, just how shit showed up? What was it? Yeah, it, it was really a combination of both. Okay, so the original opportunities that I created, I've just sort of described how the business got started. Yep. Uh, I tried, I tried honestly to uh, maintain a good reputation throughout all, to leave all business transactions with people happy at both ends. I haven't been 100% successful in, in, in every case, but for, you know, Years and years, I've, I've tried to do that. So I think that I'm approachable and people regard the, our organization as having integrity and being fair. And, and, and so opportunities came to me. You know, I already talked about the CEO of, of Equitable coming to talk to me because we had a good relationship in the uh, condo lending business. I talked about how that condo lending business started. It was really just talking to people, but always with a sense of, understanding, you know, and, and, and trying to curious about what's going on. You know, uh, one of the things that my kids will tell you 
if you ever get a chance to talk to them, is that uh, in all kinds of situations, I'm, I, I was always, even as a young person, trying to understand the dynamic in which I was in any given moment. So for example, you know, even sitting in a restaurant, you know, one time when my son was young, I picked up a salt shaker, okay, that was on our table in the restaurant. And I said to him, let's try to name all of the businesses that had to come together and offer their products and services in order for this simple little salt shaker to end up here on our table. And you'll be surprised, okay, how mm -hmm. many have to touch this thing. And remember, the salt shaker came, you know, in a glass container. There was salt inside. The glass, it had a screw top, metal on top, you know. And we start trying to list, and we're writing it down on a napkin, you know. The, the person who, who harvested the sand that had to be burned to make the glass, you know, and the shirt sure. on the think of that. And then the metal, what went into mm -hmm. the metal? And how did the metal get polished? Somebody had to have a brush to polish that metal and the, and the glass, you know. And then, and then the whole delivery chain and all that kind of stuff. And where did the salt come from? And how did it get refined, you know? And you just think about how complex our world is, but because of that complexity, there is opportunity literally everywhere. You just have to be able to see it. You just have to be able to see it. And people either see it or they don't see it. Entrepreneurs tend to see it, okay? And they, they grab onto it and they ride with it, sometimes more successfully than others, but others just don't see it. Well, you know, it's interesting that there was a book, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to ever read the book by Tim Ferriss called Tools of Titans. And where he, he did, a, it was amazing thought process that he had where he actually sent out an email to, two, I think it was 200 uh, CEOs of big corporations and big names. And he talked, you know, he asked them a certain set of questions and and then just offered to say, you know, would you answer these? And he got a huge response. And it was a cool story about how he wrote the book. But within the book were these major CEOs of big corporations. And to your point, there's one of the things that they learned to do, and almost all of them said it at some point, was they learned to say no more times than they said yes. And, you know, in that context, any wisdom that you learned over the years, because you're seeing so many opportunities, especially given, you know, the financial, you know, uh, extremes that we go to in Canada when it comes to real estate and, and, you know, funding <laughs> projects, what have you learned in terms of no saying no to opportunities? Because lots of young entrepreneurs, especially say yes to so many things. The next thing you know, they're, you know, they're fighting fires and, or they're, you know, things are not, you know, things are crumbling around them. What, what, anything that you would add to that conversation, David? Uh, I would say uh, I've definitely said no to more opportunities than yes, but I but I have to tell you that along the way, I've made a couple of venture capital investments. Okay, that's not really what my company does, but they came my way, and uh, with mixed results, you mm. know, with results. So I've had uh, I've had some that were relatively small that flopped. I had one that I thought flopped, but it recently skyrocketed and I don't know where it's going now. It's gonna be really interesting. It might turn into a unicorn, okay? Like one of those billion dollar companies is certainly poised that it looks like it could. And then I've had some in between. And so I don't really know about where I stand on 
you know, saying no to more than, than yes, or, you know, like that whole thing. You just have to be careful what you sure. do. You know, I, I want to say that if I had any criticism of myself that I would inflict upon myself, having, uh, you know, evaluated my career, I would say that I, I could have been a lot more successful had I truly, truly embraced Something, by the way, which I'm doing now, okay? The concept of professional management, okay? So my company has been successful, but it still is a relatively small company. And it was really, for much of its history, David Morrison with a few people around him. Mm -hmm. And I never leveraged high-quality, educated management to take me to go forward where I could move into the background you know, and I think maybe that was an ego problem I had, you know, sure. I, I'm, I'm getting cured of it very quickly right now mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm, I'm 67 years old. And what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to develop a management team for the next generation. And I got a bunch of 30 somethings in here and I'm trying to set them up so that they can actually take over. I've even devolved equity upon them. And I'm starting to where it doesn't matter that I'm the owner. It doesn't matter that I'm the leader. I got to figure out how am I getting out of this? You know what I mean? Well, this is, it's interesting because, you know, at this point in my life, you know, and something that I have discovered as well, I'm not quite as old as you. I'm 64, but I've also learned along the way. And I, and I wish I would have learned it earlier. And I think probably in hindsight, you'd probably say the same thing, which is if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're in, you're in the wrong room, you know, and, and as, as a CEO of our businesses, if I had a lesson that I wish I would have gotten sooner is surround myself with way smarter people than me, which I did not do until far later in my business. And I look back and I go, Hmm, oversight, big oversight. It's my major criterion now in hiring. If I don't think they're smarter than me, <laughs> I don't want them here, right? Yeah. I mean, I've got I've got no ego at play anymore mm-hmm. in this world. Yeah. You know, but I think I did too much in the early years, you yeah. know. And I could have developed even more success and been and and had uh more independence today, be more liberated today had I done that. But you know what? I figured it out. I'm working on it. And I expect that within another three years from now, I'll be completely non-executive management of the company. I'll sit as chair of the company. I'll sit on the credit committee. But I, I, I'm already slowly getting removed from day to day. And it feels pretty good. I got I I gotta, so many different directions I want to take this conversation, David, because there's lots of learning in it. But I'm also curious in a number of other ways, but let me, let me go back. And only because you kind of put it there, you could have been far more successful. I mean, let's face it by 99.9% of anybody's standards, you're very successful, but how do you rate and how do you look at yourself? Do you have a kind of picture of what success is for you? So the answer is it's changing as we speak. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's changing as we speak again, it's coming from, wisdom mm-hmm. okay. the type of wisdom that you only gain by just getting older and observing different situations i should so, only have old guys like us on the show you know that's really where the wisdom lives in the learning but go ahead sorry to interrupt well they say often that youth is wasted on young people <laughs> it is, but it's true <laughs> uh, but what's happened with me is in my adult years uh, i've managed to be exposed to some super wealthy business people. And some, uh, I've been 
in a community of, I'm going to say extreme wealth. Okay. Mm -hmm. Some billionaires, hundreds of millions of dollars like this. And I, some of it inherited, Yep. inherited, you know, not earned. Okay. And, and some of it uh, earned, you know, or partially earned or or came together, however you want to describe it. And I've observed a lot of different things. Okay. And one of them is that money will make your life a little more convenient. But if you think it's going to make you happy, Mm. when the fundamentals are not there, uh, you're just mistaken. You're chasing the wrong thing. And I think that a lot of us in our culture are chasing the wrong thing. And I, as I get older, I realize this, that the things that are of value in my life, the things that enable me to self-actualize, I, I've been teaching my kids this since, since they were very young. Uh, you have to have an important relationship in your life, interpersonal relationship. You have to you know, maybe even more than one, but at least one interpersonal relationship in your life. And the second thing is you have to self-actualize, but self-actualizing isn't necessarily about earning money. It's not all about money, okay? Self-actualizing is doing something that is hard to do, that takes a long time to do, and persisting at it, and setting goals that you intermediary goals along the way. If, if you're not self-actualizing, it's very difficult to be happy. And so, you know, I regard my business as just the way I self-actualize, but it could have been something else. It might've been as an athlete or as a musician or as an artist or as something else. I I have respect for all of those, you know, and uh, I think that, you know, when it comes to business and, you know, chasing money and all that, it comes to a limit where, you know, each incremental dollar that you earn has less and less marginal enjoyment associated with it. You, you, you really, that's why you see very rich people just start giving it away because they can't really do anything with it, you know? And so I, I, I discourage people from, from sort of, I, I try to encourage people to just remain balanced about what's really valuable in their lives. You know, mm. I have an acquaintance of mine who was a billionaire, one of the wealthiest guys in Canada, recently got cancer and passed away. Yeah. It is interesting, right? Uh, you know, I've I've come to a conclusion a long time ago that, and this was a couple things. Number one, I lo- I love nice things, but I am no longer and haven't been for a long time obsessed about it. I joke about it all the time. I don't want to have to insure it. I don't have to wash it. I don't want to have to worry about scratching it. You know, I don't need bells and whistles that I because I've had that in my past and realized that. That didn't make me any more happy, although I enjoyed it. It wasn't all that great. But there was something that was interesting about all of this. And and, and I want to go back into a conversation that you had. Just This is more of a philosophical kind of tangent I'm going on here, uh, David. But you said something about a circle of influence of very wealthy. And in that, some made their wealth and some did not. And it was interesting that I read kind of an article, if you will, about a trust funder. And he actually shared his insights into being a trust funder. And he goes, the problem with being a trust funder is no matter what you do, you'll always be a transfer, a trust funder. It won't matter what you accomplish. It won't matter what you build. It will not matter how much you give away, how much you take a, you could build a billion dollar business and in behind it, everybody will be saying, yeah, but he's a trust funder. He had all the money. He had it, he had it made. I can name people. I won't who suffered from that from a young age. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
And it's not a pleasurable situation, nope. you know, because they've been robbed of the opportunity of being recognized as having self-actualized themselves. Yes. And, you know, I don't think I do my kids any favor if what I do is I just dump on them a bunch of money, okay? Yeah. I've tried to teach them to self-actualize and to create self-worth from within themselves by what they're doing. And they're actively involved in that today. And I think it's very, very important. And speaking to the other issue, I, I tell people I'm becoming more and more Buddhist every day yeah. that goes by. Yeah, I you know agree. That in the philosophy of Buddhism, yeah. they considered nirvana was when you were divorced from any need for anything material in this mm -hmm. world whatsoever. Mm -hmm. you, know, you could live happily in your mind, okay, yeah. meditating in your mind. And the older I get, the less I need things, yeah. okay? And, and the less things, you know, like I realized a while ago, when you, know, when you die and people think back upon you, nobody is going to remember what car you drove. Nobody. They're not really going to remember what house you lived in or what the furniture looked like or anything like that, yep. okay? But if you did something, you helped somebody in a time, like, and I have many examples of this because I was in the financial services business where I helped people in their businesses at a time when they need money. I loaned them money. And some of them today, you know, they paid me back a long time ago. But some of them today, I'm still friends with, and I know, and they've gone on to be successful. And when it comes time, you know, people are looking back at me, I know those people will be thinking not about what car I drove in, okay? And they'll be telling people, you know, when I really needed it, he was the guy who loaned me the money, and look where I'm at today. And, and I have one case, an example, that gives me joy every time I think back on it. But when I was in the factoring business, we had a client. It was a company that it was a public company. I'm not, not sure if I should be mentioning the names. Okay. Uh, but we, we gave them financing and I got to know the CFO and I got to know the president of the company very, very well. And then what happened was they got sold into a, you know, one of these uh, hedge funds in New York, and it was kind of a crooked operation. Long and behold, they came back to me five years after I paid them out, uh, after they paid me out, I'm sorry. And they said, we've got an opportunity, Bob and I, it was the CFO calling me, it was this woman and, and her uh, boss, the, print, the president of the company, Bob and I have a chance to buy the company. Uh, and, I, and they said, but we need $3 million. And uh, I said, okay, well, let's get together. Let's meet. Like, I like them. I had done this business with them before in the past. I said, let's get, you know, I, I'm available like the next week or the week after. And they said, no, you don't understand. We got to close in 10 days. Okay. And I said, you know, and the reason why there was a competing offer, the, the, the hedge fund had gone into receivership and the receiver was selling off the assets. It was a competing offer. And they said, look, if you're going to sell the company, can't you give management a chance to buy it? And I, and, and he said, well, yes, but I'm not going to let this other offer go. You got 10 days go. So I said, get to my office. They came in and they arrived at 9.30 in the morning and we stayed in my office straight through for about 10 hours. We negotiated a deal. I gave them the money. They bought, we bought the company on, within the 10 days and uh, I took an equity stake in that. So today they're my partners and uh, I just can't tell you how successful it's been. And, and I love these guys because I've never actually been in the office. I've never gone yeah. to the company's office. Yeah, they, yeah. they took what I did. They took me back in two or three years. Uh, but they're so appreciative to this day. I know that I made a difference in their lives. You know, uh, they've gone on and they've had their own success. But it's not just me. I, I, I gave them the opportunity, but they ran with the opportunity. You know, in a football game, 
you know, it's one thing to give the ball to somebody, but that guy's got to be able to run with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Somebody's got to run with the ball. I gave them the ball, but they ran with it so beautifully. And, uh, and they've done very, very well. It's a multi-million dollar company now. And, uh, and it's just been a great thing and I've benefited from it, but really it, what gives it the pleasure is being able to have made that difference in their lives. And I got a hundred stories like that. Well, I think that's a, you know, you know, I've often said, you know, within the real estate investment network with what we do, you know, we've literally educated now at this point, tens of thousands of people that have gone on to do and build their own financial future investing in real estate. You know, that was the education. That was the research that we did. And that's, you know, I was always built around contribution. So somewhere in me all the time, I was built to say, how can I support somebody else's success? And that's what lit me up. Now, when you look at what you've done over the years, you know, you just shared a great story and you've said you've done it hundreds, hundreds of times, which, of course, in that space that you played, you're probably making a huge difference. And there's a lot of contribution that comes with just that whole model of what you do. But did you have a an awareness around that part of what you do at some point, you know, creating win-win situations and or supporting others in achieving success? And was that contribution part was that a conscious thing at a fairly early age with you, do you think, David? I don't know if it was a conscious thing, but I can tell you that it's part of my nature. Yeah. To want to open a transaction and close a transaction successfully, shake hands and say, well, you know, it was good for you, it was good for me, you know what I mean? That kind sure. of thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, that was always the, the way I approached stuff. I really didn't want to argue with people. I didn't want to fight with people. I didn't want to litigate with people. I just wanted to open and close transactions successfully and, uh, and, and be recognized as having done that. And most of my career has been that way. Not every transaction has ended successfully, there's no question. But the thing is that it's been that way. And I think it was an innate part of my character, you mm -hmm. know, really. When you look at, when you look into the future, again, you know, you've had, you know, you've built great a great business. You've helped a lot of people. You've made a lot of money. You know, you're at a point in your life where you're trying to reconfigure so that you can make sure that, you know, the business carries on and you're not at the helm on a day-to-day -day basis. So when you think about the word retirement, what does that sound like or mean to you, do you think, David? Uh, for, for me, it's a swear word. Okay. Yeah. It's never going to not, it's not going to happen in the classical sense. Yeah. I'm not going to go golf. Yeah. I'm not going to sit on a beach. You know, those images they show the sure. guys sitting on the beach. Uh, you know, I, 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 I will always work, but I don't want to be in day-to-day -day operations and administrative yeah. company forever. I, I'm, I'm getting to the point where I've had enough of that. I don't really need that. Yeah. I want to give people, other people the opportunity. I still want to be able to harvest that. But all of the things that typically motivate us are out of my system. I don't have any ego. I don't, I don't need more, you know, I just want to figure out a way to stay involved. I'll be mostly a capital provider to the business going forward. Uh, my money will stay in the business and enable the young people that take over to have a platform on which they operate. And probably it will remain in the business, all other things being equal until the day I die. And then they'll inherit my children, you know, yeah. as beneficiaries uh, of my estate. Uh, but by that time, I will probably have trained my children to be hands off. Yeah. Take their, take their dividends, but don't interfere with good management. Yeah, stay the hell out. <laughs> I was I always joke that I'm on the Freedom 95 program because I still love what I do. And as long as I love what I do, I'll continue to do it. And uh, I think that's a great way to to look 
into the future, at least for me. And it sounds like you're kind of of a similar mindset. Tell me something along the way, David, is that, you know, you ha- you've had a team of people, you are leading a team, you talk about self-actualization. Was there a part of you that when you look at the personal development space, I mean, as a lawyer, there's lots of professional development. You're kind of wired to study in terms of business acumen, and you were obviously good at it. But when you look at who you were as a leader and how you handled people, perhaps, was there a conscious effort to learn to be a great leader? Did you study that part of it? Or, or did that was that something that just kind of also was a little bit innate for you? That's a good question. First of all, I'm not sure that I am a great leader. Okay. I think that ego of my own played too much of a role in the way I led in the past and that limited me. Uh, but, but I'm getting over it. I'm getting sure I'm recovering, you know, (laughs) and, uh, uh, but the thing that I wanted to mention is that, you know, it's one of these things where, again, there's no template. There's no book that you can, that can tell you that. There's people that will tell you that they've written books on this and how to manage people and all that, how to influence people, make friends and influence people, all that kind of stuff. But there really is no template. But, you know, scientists have told us that the human body is at least 70% water. Did you know that? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I did know that. 70% water. Okay, yeah. right? And so... You know, the human body, 70% water. Think about that, okay? I mean, I don't want to make this sound too weird, okay? But basically, we're bags of water, okay? And when you you manage a company, okay, you're managing a bunch of bags of water beside (laughs) each other, okay? And, you know, and they're not firm. They're jiggly. They're jiggly, you know, and what I mean by that is they got all kinds of things going on. They're sort of controlled by this nerve center up in the brain, okay, synapses and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, one of the lies that I was taught when I was young was that we were all born equal, you know, Mm. and my parents were trying to teach me is they were trying to teach me not to discriminate against people of color or anything like that. Okay, yes. to be very liberal minded. And that's the way I've raised my kids. And that's what I am. Okay. But that's what they were trying to teach. But what they meant by all born equal is they meant that we're all entitled to equal rights before the law. We're all equal and equally entitled to human dignity and to be treated with, you know, basic respect and, and all of those things. Okay. But the idea that we're all born equal you know, I realized it was a fallacy. We're not all born equal. You know, one of my hobbies, I like to play tennis. Okay. I love playing tennis. And my wife and I play tennis all the time. I didn't start the sport till I was 48 years old. Okay. Yep. But you know, I don't care how much I practice. I don't care how many lessons I have. <laughs> okay. I'm never going to play like Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal or yep. any of the top four, you know, 10 players. I'm never even going to play as good as a head coach at the club that I used to belong to. Yep. You know what I mean? And and he's a relative unknown, okay, right? And so, you know, people have talents. You know, talent is a a natural thing, okay? And then we come with different personalities. Some of us are hardworking. Some of us are lazy. I don't indict anybody, you know? It's just what we are. Some of us are very intelligent. Some of us are less so. Some of us have, you know, as I said, athletic talents and stuff like that. You know, some of us are very emotional, and others of us aren't emotional. We're able to contain that. Yeah. And, you know, 
basically, when you're trying to run an organization, you're bringing all these bags of water together, and they're all governed by these jiggly things that are happening up there, okay? And it's really difficult. It's really difficult. So one of the things that can condemn an organization is when you don't know it, okay? But there's a jealous rivalry going on between two lower employees in your company and one sabotaging the other or something like that. Or maybe there's a feeling of insecurity by an employee that is affecting the way he's performing his job or what he's doing. The most common one that I've seen is where somebody is trying to control their sphere of influence and not teaching somebody else any part of their job because they think that that is going to limit them. In, in like because now they'll be dispensable, okay? Because somebody else knows sure. how to do this. Yeah. They don't realize that the most valuable person in the company is the one that can teach any job and willingly does so because you want that person because if somebody else leaves, they can train that person, mm. you know? And so you've got all these things going on, okay? Coupled with each one of them dealing with stuff in their own personal lives, whatever might be going on, a breakup, a girlfriend, a divorce, like whatever it is, own life challenges, you know, maybe their own financial problems, you know, and, and you're trying to manage these, this whole thing. There's no rule, you know, there's no rule book that's going to tell you exactly what to do. And sometimes you'll say something that might offend an employee. You don't even know you said it. Okay, but they're mm -hmm. offended or they took something a different way. And, uh, you know, it's a real talent to be able to keep long term employees happy and loyal and working with the company. And I've had mixed success with that. I've had some people that have been with me for like 20 years and others that have come and gone in short periods of time. And I just really have come to understand that that is the central challenge of running a business, trying to get all of those people working towards that same goal and, uh, and, and moving in one direction. It's not dissimilar to the analogies that you'll sometimes see with sports teams. You know, you know, like, well, it's interesting that you, you know, you, you, but that's exactly it. Yeah. I, I, this is, I'll just interject with a quick story, but you know, there's a, there was a time in my life where I was able to, and I did spend a lot of time with a guy by the name of Bill Comrie, who was, uh, who actually owned the brick at the, at one point in time. And I was, we were, my wife and I were in California at Bill and his wife's house and we were sitting there he actually gave me the book, good to great to read it. But we were talking about his success. And I asked him the question. I said, you know, Bill, you know, you come from these humble beginnings, you know, and uh, could have been a professional hockey player. And now you've built this, you know, almost billion dollar business. And I, you know, we talked about how he did it. And, you know, he said at the end of the day, he said, as the kind of pointy end of the spear, a driver of this bus, he says, I'm really a coach. And he says, I'm only as good as the people I surround myself with and my ability to coach those people, which is really, in some regards, really what you're saying. The ability to look at your team, coach them through the shit that they got to get through. I don't That's That's what he shared that with me. It always stuck with me. But, you know, is that similar to your thought process here? It's how I spend 99% of my business time now. Yeah. I actually will avoid, if at all possible, taking on a task. I want to guide somebody through that task. I want them to take a first stab at it, and then I want to talk about it. Uh, I don't just want to do it. You know, in the yeah. old days, I might have. I might have. You know, yep. I learned now if I'm going to get this team where I want them to go, uh, they have to have practice, and it's yep. all of the coaching and and trying to get, as we said, people that are 
fundamentally smarter than me. <laughs> can we do it? Yes, you can do it. Well, yeah, you know, and keeping, them, and keeping them motivated and keeping them happy and uh, and trying to shape them to work together as a team. And uh, in, it's, as I said, it's a path you go into. It's a bit of a jungle. There's no clear demarcations yep. that tell you where to go. Uh, you just constantly adjust. And uh, uh, But what I have done is uh, learned that you know, you can't run an organization where you make anybody indispensable. No. You have to try to do it, uh, you know, make sure that you've covered that base because you'll never know when somebody's going to say, hey, look, at I'm out of here for one reason or another. And you have to be prepared to deal with that. And so uh, there's a there's a coach that many years ago taught me this lesson. And we don't ever want to lose good people. But the reality is that um, we often do. And secondly, sometimes we have to get rid of people that are good in what they do, but just really toxic to the environment. And I've had to make those decisions. And, you know, I've had this, you know, discussion with executive team, for example, and they'll go, ah, you can't get rid of them. And, and it's going to be too costly. And I always go back to the rule that I was taught. And that is the hit by the bus rule. And I go, you know something, this person has to go for the reasons they have to go. And if they got hit by the bus, if they got hit by a bus, I would deal with it. And at the end of the day, if I get hit by a bus, the team's got to be able to deal with it. But that's that's my fundamental. If somebody got hit by the bus, would you be able to deal with it? And and the answer is yes. And so that's where I based my decision on. So it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, because my uh, my company has a large banking relationship. Sure. And one of the terms of that banking relationship is that I have key man insurance. They consider me the key man. Yeah, okay? yeah. My wife is insuring for several millions of dollars. Sure. Okay. And that will go into the company and 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 it'll go to the bank to help repay any indebtedness that exists at the time if I should happen to pass away, right? So what's happened now, I got that policy when I was like 32 years old, yep. okay? Now I'm 67 years old and the premiums go up every decade, A lot, right? yeah. So now, now I'm at the <laughs> stage where they really climb. And, yep. and you ask yourself, is it economically makes sense to continue paying these premiums, you yep. know? And so we recently were in a discussion with the bank and I, said, look, you have this key man insurance, but this may be the last year. And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to convince them. And I think rightly so, you know, I'm not key anymore. (laughs) You don't need me. Okay. If I get suddenly get pulled out, your ability to get repaid, your ability to to see these asset managed to conclusion so that you guys are repaid, it, it doesn't require me. As a matter of fact, I'm not even involved in that activity on a day-to-day basis. It's my employees that are handling that. I'm approving new credits. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm looking at the growth of the business. I'm coaching employees. But I'm not the guy who's managing your money right now. And I'm having some success. And they, uh, <laughs> Good they, for you, I, David. I'm just now approaching <laughs> the point where they're kind of recognizing that I'm not really key, even though I'm the guy who has to key man insurance. <laughs> Might have been two decades ago, but it's it's that way now. So, and and you want it to be that way. You yes. don't want it if you're pulled out suddenly. There's kind of hope there'll be a little bit of sadness, maybe you know, <laughs> they, yeah. you know that they'll be coming to recognize my presence in their life and not to make sure that I'm planted. You know, and uh, so David, as we start winding down, uh, still got a, a, a kind of a segment that I like to do here, which is uh, a few uh, rapid fire questions and um, you know. They're generally not that rapid fire, but let's see what we can do to uh, handle some questions as we kind of wind down the show here today. Let's try it. Let's Let's try try it. it. Do you have a favorite book that you read or one that you gift? 
uh, favorite book that I read or one that I gift? Uh, there is an answer to that question, but um, I, I'm trying to, uh, I mean, I'll tell you one that I love. Sure, okay. please. Short novella, okay, that uh, was written by John Steinbeck. It's called The Pearl. The Pearl? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, are you oh, that's a, that? that's gosh that um, that went way back in my memory banks. That's a, that's yeah. Yeah, from years ago. But that's a little story. Yeah. It's a little parable about a a, 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 a primitive village, you know, where they yes. The, uh, now it's coming back they, to me. They earn their sustenance by diving for pearls. Yep. You know, pearl divers, right? In, in the South Pacific Island or something like that, right? Yep. And and they live this peaceful bucolic existence, you know, and. Uh, one day what happens is one of the divers finds this amazing pearl like beyond anything that they've ever seen. Okay. And he harvests that pearl and it becomes known amongst the village that he has it. And what happens is it changes the whole character. Dynamic, of their yeah. Because suddenly there's jealousy because yeah. somebody differentiated themselves. Suddenly there's greed. Suddenly, infighting starts because he's good now lessons. Good lessons, and it and it's very Shakespearean in the way it investigates the yeah. eruption of all of these uh, traits of human, you know, and ultimately at the, it destroys their the, the peacefulness in their village. And of course, I'm, I'm not telling you anything by telling you the end. But he goes, he walks up to the edge of the ocean, and he whips the pearl back as far into the water as he can because he just wants life to go back to normal sure. as it was. And, Interesting. Uh, it's a very, very interesting story, one of my favorites. And so I often encourage people to read that because I want them to understand human nature. Good know? lessons in there. Um, yeah. It's not about business. It's about human nature. You know? Beautiful. So, your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first? Definitely my desk. You like a clean desk. Okay, got it. A clean desk, yeah. Do you have a favorite swear word? The usual. <laughs> well, there's the, listen, I've got people that cracks me up all the time because I F-bomb all the time. I, you know, like I, you know, I, I swear like a construction worker sometimes. But the, the question, you know, the, and then I have people that go, no, 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 I don't swear. I go, really? No, no, I, I swear. The time I swear the most is on a tennis court when I flub a shot. <laughs> of course. When I had a, like, a yeah. really easy shot so, that I should have had. So a buddy of mine lives on a golf course at a, on a tee, you know, at a, at a tee, and, he, and, he, and I call it, you know, everybody calls it golf. He calls it, I call it whap fuck. You know, because he, he grew up sitting in his, well, not grew up, but he sits in his backyard at the tee box, and that's all he hears, whap fuck. So I go, okay, that's what he calls golf these my days. Dad, my dad used to call the game a bingo, ah, shit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Somebody would yell out a bingo and everybody else would go, ah, shit. Are you a music buff? Do you have a favorite tune? Favorite band? I, 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 no, no, but my, my music sensibilities largely come from the 60s and 70s, which yeah. in my view was like the golden age of music. Sure. I mean, Are you now a mature rocker or uh, what do you like? Uh, well, I spent much of my time in my youth uh, playing guitar and piano and oh. all that. I can't do it anymore. I have a, a condition called Dupiton syndrome. I don't know if you've ever heard no, of it. No, never heard of it. Uh, I've had to have some surgery. It's resulted in, uh, in a uh, neuropathy in my left hand, so I can't do much of that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I used to quite a bit. Uh, but no, all of the... Uh, 
you know, stuff that we used to listen to in the 60s and 70s sure. and all that nostalgic stuff. It's still uh, very meaningful to me. And I like some of the modern stuff as well. Uh, I do listen to a lot of music. I like music. I, I'm into it. But I, I wouldn't say I'm a favorite per se. Yep. I like all genres and uh, Good I for listen you. to all stuff. Yeah. If, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you get to the gates? Uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> just as good as any and david final question what are you grateful for today i would say more than anything else my wife mm. gosh isn't that the case hey where would we be without our wives well, i know some people would have a different view of that. <laughs> well i don't so my view is, is yours yeah i didn't i didn't get married until i was relatively late i was 32 when i got married and met my wife at 31 mm. uh we were both working professionals at the time i was a lawyer uh she was a medical doctor and uh and uh she it was just best decision i ever made in my life Fantastic. And I too am grateful for my wife, but I'm also grateful for having the opportunity to have met you and uh, have you join me on the show today, David. There's so much uh, great stuff in our conversation today. Lots of lessons to be learned and gained from uh, anybody who's followed this long. I know that you uh, you would have picked up a lot of good insights uh, based on what David shared with us today. So, David, thank you very, very much. And uh, this dude, I think there's got to be a part two to this. I, I see another one coming down the road. There's still lots of, lots of wisdom that you uh, that you've got to share. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.